Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, Crosspoint. How you all doing? Uh, so good to be joining with you this morning. Uh, for those of you just joining us for the first time, we are continuing our teaching series uh, as we're walking through the book of Amos. And of course, our teaching series is called Check Engine. Hey, let me just uh, send out a special Mother's Day social distancing high five uh, to all of the moms and grandmoms and stepmoms and whatever moms are out there today. Uh, you are dearly loved by God, and I hope you know that today. No matter what you did today as a mom, no matter what you did yesterday, no matter what you did last week or even last year, God's love for you does not change uh, even today. And of course, to my mom and my mother-in-law and to Karen, my beloved wife, the best mom ever, happy Mother's Day, high five to you at home. Um, Now, if if you've been... uh, connecting with Crosspoint for a while, you've been attending for a while, uh, I hope you've picked up on this one fact. We have never, ever in the history of Crosspoint done a Mother's Day sermon or a Father's Day sermon. You know what we do? Typically, whatever series we're in, we are in, we just kind of keep on rolling through that series on Mother's Day or Father's Day, and we do not stop. And this is what we are going to be doing this morning. Uh, So today, we're going to be exploring what is probably one of Christianity's most offensive doctrines. That's right. What better way to celebrate Mother's Day than to talk about divine judgment? Great topic for today. Aren't you happy you joined with us this morning? High five. High five, moms. Yes. Okay. Uh, So... uh, We are going to uh, be getting right into Amos chapter 1 in a moment here. Uh, But before we do this, I think it's really important that we quickly review the backstory of Amos. Um, And if you want the full backstory, I want to encourage you to go back last week, watch online or listen uh, to our podcast, and you're going to get the full message, the full backstory. So all I'm going to give you this morning is the abridged version, the executive summary on the backstory. So Amos. Amos was a shepherd. He prophesied to the nation of Israel during what is called the divided kingdom. Uh, The divided kingdom happened after the reign of King Solomon in Israel's history. Uh, The kingdom was essentially split into Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Amos lived in Judah in the south, but he was sent by God to go and prophesy to Israel in the north. Now, in in Amos' day, both of the nations, both the north and the south, were were prospering. They were prospering militarily, economically, socially. But contrary to popular belief, and I mean today's popular belief, safety and prosperity are not the only indicators of God's favor. Israel, as it turns out, had some pretty serious issues, and we're going to get to that in a few minutes. But one of its major issues was idolatry. When the kingdom divided after Solomon, Israel decided they were going to set up their own places of worship in the north. uh, Because what they wanted to do is they wanted to keep their people from going down south to Judah, to Jerusalem, where the temple was. They figured that if they went down to Jerusalem, then they'd probably reform the nation and everybody would get back together. They didn't want the band to get back together. They wanted to keep them apart. So what they did is they set up their own temples in the north, one in Bethel and another in Dan. 
and uh, they set up golden calves in each of the temple, and these became the object of worship. These became the gods for Israel in the north. And by the time Amos rolled around, this had been going on already for 150 years. So God sent this dusty shepherd from the barren wilderness in the south into northern Israel. And when he got there, he went straight to its religious center. He went to the, the city of Bethel, where the temple is, and he began preaching and he began prophesying. And so what we have today in the book of Amos is, is, is basically a summary of his sermons, of some of his poems, uh, some of the visions that he had and that he would have proclaimed when he was in the north and in Bethel. So today, we're going to back up to where we left off last week. We're going to back up to Amos chapter 1 and verse 2. And I'd like you to imagine something with me this morning. I'd like you to imagine with me that we're in the temple courts at Bethel. Okay, The temple, of course, was, was the center of power. It was the center of wealth for the city. Uh, it's bustling with worshipers who are there. But then suddenly, on any given day, in walks this backwoodsy shepherd through the door. And, and he lifts up his voice above the ruckus and above the commotion. And he begins by delivering this message. And here we have it in Amos chapter 1 and verse 2. Here's what he says. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion. And he utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn. The top of Carmel withers. Now, as I, as I said last week, uh, verse 2, is, it's really kind of an introduction. It's kind of a summary of what's going to happen for the rest of the book of Amos. Uh, he's basically saying, the Lord, Yahweh, your covenant God, he is roaring like a lion. And he's not roaring from Bethel. He's not roaring from this place. No, he's roaring from Jerusalem, from Judah. He's roaring from the place of true worship, where the temple is. And his roar is a sign of power. And his roar is a sign of warning. Judgment is advancing. Prepare for coming doom. Now, of course, Amaziah was the priest at that time in Bethel. So he was kind of the cult leader. He was the celebrity pastor of Israel, right? And uh, it's not hard to imagine that he was there on that day. And it's not hard to imagine that he would have, he would have heard this prophecy. And when he heard him speak, he likely asked the question, doom? Doom for whom? So, so after this resounding introduction, Amos continued with his prophecy. But it's interesting, he didn't actually speak against Israel. Instead, he began to speak against Israel's neighbors, the so surrounding nations around Israel. So Damascus and Gaza, and then he went to Tyre and, and Edom, to the Ammonites and to Moab. And, and each and every one of them, he harshly condemns them for each of these nations for their different sins. And, and, and as you walk through chapter one and into chapter two, you hear this condemnation in, in Amos's prophecy. And, and for the most part, the reason why he was condemning them was, was because of how they had treated God's covenant people. So it's because they'd broken their treaties with Israel, or they, they mercilessly and, and brutally attacked Israelites and, and slaughtered them. S some of them even captured whole communities of Israelites and sold them into slavery to other nations. Others murdered pregnant mothers. Others of them violated dead bodies. So, so each nation was going to be basically punished for their transgressions. Now, I, I think at this point, I, I, as I imagine it, uh, Amaziah would probably have been kind of leaning in to this prophecy. I mean, doom is coming, right? But doom for whom? Well, doom for Israel's neighbors, right? And he would have thought, 
awesome, right? I mean, I mean, like, hashtag, go Israel. Uh, uh, hashtag, God's got my back. Uh, hashtag, they got what they deserved, right? Retweet, repost, share, put it on my story, right? I mean, it's, it's like Oprah Winfrey showed up in Bethel, and suddenly everybody gets a prophecy, and you get a prophecy, and you get a prophecy, and you get a prophecy, right? But what Amazai didn't realize was he was being set up. Amos was setting a trap. He was laying out just pieces of bait. And Amaziah didn't know that a noose was slowly being lowered around his neck. Now, of course, Amos didn't stop there. Next, he actually prophesied against Judah, the nation to the south. And, and, and at first, I think Amaziah may have been okay with that, right? After all, there, there was a long-standing grudge between Israel and Judah. Sure, they were peaceful right now, but they weren't always that way. And, and maybe Judah was finally getting what was coming to them. Except the prophecy against Judah may also have started to make Amaziah feel just a little bit anxious. I want to pull it up for us, and let's look at it. Amos chapter 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So, so you got to remember, Judah was, was, was God's chosen people. I mean, they were in a covenant relationship with God. The law of Moses kind of spelled out this agreement of the covenant. And if they kept the covenant, as God promised in, in the latter chapters of Deuteronomy, they kept the covenant, God would bless them. But if they didn't keep the covenant, God would curse them in order to pull them back into this covenant relationship. So now, I mean, Amos shows up and, and God is condemning Judah because they have not kept this covenant. And you got to wonder, I mean, he was coming after his own people for not keeping his promises. And suddenly the wheels are starting to turn in Amaziah's brain. I mean, if the Lord was willing to judge Judah for not keeping the covenant, what would that mean for Israel? I mean, they were, in fact, the same covenant people. And you see, many scholars actually think that the, there's a reason why Amos doesn't begin with Israel's judgment. But instead, he, he begins with the Lord's judgment over all of the surrounding nations. So I want to do something for us this morning. I want to take, take a map, and I want to throw it up on the screen. And I want you to look. Uh, notice the red lightning bolts there. Each of them indicates the locations the Lord was speaking against. And, of course, that includes Judah to the south. You see that map? See those locations? Now, if you look closely, you'll notice that each of these locations actually forms a circle. But who's at the center of that circle? I want to throw up the next slide. Israel is actually at the center of this circle. And you might say that Israel is in the crosshairs of God's judgment, and all the other nations form a spiral of shame around Israel. And so what has happened at this moment in the prophecy is that the noose has finally tightened around Amaziah and Israel's neck. And for the rest of the prophecy, actually for eight more chapters, eight, eight more chapters, imagine that, Amos begins to speak solely against Israel. He doesn't talk anymore about Judah or any of the other surrounding nations. It's just all about Israel. And you find out later in, Amaziah, in Amos chapter 7 that Amaziah is not happy about this at all. So the question is, why was the Lord so upset with Israel? Well, to answer that, I want to encourage you to, of course, to stick around for the rest of the series because that's what we're going to be talking about. And there is a lot that we can learn from Israel's mistakes. Um, those of you, of course, if you have older siblings, you know what I'm talking about, right? Pay attention to your older siblings' mistakes and you will grow in wisdom and you will grow in your parents' favor. But, but you, get an, you get a glimpse of Israel's problems if you start reading in chapter 2 and verse 6. Let's look at it together. 
Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profane. They lay themselves beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So what's, what's going on here? Well, well first of all, there's, there's oppression. There's abuse of power. Judges are being bribed. The, the poor are being sold into slavery for minor debts. But not only that, fathers and sons are hooking up with prostitutes in pagan temples. Also, wealthy fat cats are extorting the poor. Right. So the rich are getting richer. The poor are getting poorer. They're drinking the, the poor's wine. They're using their cloaks as pillows as they worship at pagan, pagan altars. Right. So this is an abuse of power. People are being sold and discarded like commodities. And all of this was a clear violation of God's law. I mean, the, the, the law not only condemned idol worship, the, the law also condemned abuse of the poor. See, the thing about the Torah is the, the Torah is just not a bunch of rules that are set up, a bunch of moral obligations. The Torah also spelled out how Israel was to create a truly just society. And, and Israel was breaking all of the Torah's rules. So Israel was essentially crumpling up the law and throwing it away into the blue bin. And at the end of chapter 2, the Lord presents this verdict against the nation of Israel to the north. Here's what he says. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift the foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. So the Lord essentially says to Israel, I am going to press you down. I mean, it doesn't matter how strong you are, how fast you are, how tough you are, how courageous you are. I am going to press you down like a cart of grain. In my 20s, I drove truck for a farmer during one grain harvest, just one. Drove truck, of course, is Saskatchewan slang for I drove the grain truck, okay? So basically, I'd, I'd take the grain truck, I'd pull up alongside the combine, it'd dump its grain into my truck, I'd take the truck over to the bin, and I'd transfer the grain into the bin. So I drove truck. Now, I might not be knowing, I may not know a lot about farming, but I do know one thing to be true. There is a huge difference between a full grain truck and an empty grain truck. A full grain truck, I mean, when all that grain is in the truck, that truck is heavy. I mean, it barely moves. The engine groans and curses under the weight of all that wheat trying to get it going. You wouldn't want to be pressed down under a cart full of wheat. In fact, you'd be surprised how many people uh, have died in farming accidents by being buried under a pile of grain. It's horrible. It crushes them. It suffocates them. Without assistance, you will not get out. It sucks you under. You will not survive no matter who you are. And the Lord says to Israel, Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves, presses down. So why was God so hard on Israel? 
Well, God actually explains this in, in chapters 2 and chapters 3. I'm just going to pull up some highlights for us today. I'm going to read them for us. Amos chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and, and who was as strong as the yokes. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And then if you jump forward to Amos chapter 3 and verse 1, here's what it says. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. The reason why God is so upset with Israel is because they are his people. I mean, he chose them from among all the nations of the world, not because they're the strongest nation or the biggest nation or the wealthiest nation or the most powerful nation. He chose them by grace and by grace alone. He called them to himself to be a blessing and to be a light to all of the other nations of the world. And not only that, he also rescued them from Egypt. I mean, they, when they were in Egypt, they were sold like cattle and they were pressed down and oppressed by Pharaoh. And then, of course, after he set them free and as they began journeying to the promised land, he defeated the Amorites so that they could get back home again. And then he gave them the law and he gave them his very presence. And he led them by day and by night in the wilderness. See, God loved Israel. God had been faithful to Israel. But now these former slaves had become slavers. Those who were oppressed were now oppressing other people. Those who had witnessed the God of Israel humiliate and defeat every God of Egypt were now running back into the arms of idols. They smoked his grace down to the filter, and now they were grinding it into the ground with their foot. They were flipping the bird at the covenant. And so they forgot who they were. They were the people of the promise. And with great promise comes great responsibility. And with great promise comes great consequences. And so now because of all of this, the Lord had said to them, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press you down. And how would he do this? Well, 40 years later, after this, the Assyrians would come in from the north. This nation would march down. And in 722 BC, Israel would fall to them, would fall to the Assyrians. Now, I just want to push pause for a moment, okay? And uh, I want to address something that might be troubling some of us at this time. You know, many people find the idea of an angry or wrathful God as unpalatable, right? Like eating raw chicken at room temperature, if I could use that analogy. You know, the atheist Richard Dawkins, he put it this way in his book, The God Delusion. Here's what he says. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, uh, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Tell us what you really think, Richard Dawkins. <laughs> so is the idea of a wrathful God just kind of you know, barbaric or antiquated. I mean, haven't we evolved since then? Isn't, isn't there maybe a more progressive view of God that we could embrace today? Now, of course, Dawkins isn't the first to say that uh, he prefers the God of the New Testament over the God of the Old Testament. It's, it's actually a sentiment that goes all the way back to Marcion in the second century. Um, Marcion, of course, was a heretic. Uh, 
people assume that the God of the New Testament is a God of love, and of course the God of the Old Testament is a God of punishment. But this usually happens only if you skim the headlines and you don't actually read the fine print. When you actually get into the details and do a deep dive into the text of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you discover that there is judgment in the New Testament and there is grace in the Old Testament. But our misgivings about a judgmental God, are, of course, are understandable when we consider the sea that we're constantly swimming in. You see, we, we, culturally, we value individualism. We value personal freedom. We're taught that we can believe whatever we want to believe, and, and people should be able to do whatever they want to do, so long as it's not hurting somebody else. So, so freedom and, and self-identity and individualism, these are, these are kind of like our inherent rights, right? And we, we know this from the beginning, from the moment we're born here in our Western culture. And so nobody has the, the right to impose their values on us. Nobody has the right to, to judge us, right? The, the greatest sin is actually to, to judge somebody else's sin. And I realize that's a circular argument, but that's what we believe in our culture. The greatest sin is for you to judge my sin. And so if we say that there is an all-powerful moral being who has hardwired objective morality into the very fabric of the universe, and he's going to hold us accountable for that. Well, that's a little bit hard for us to take. I mean, we don't want something or someone outside of ourselves imposing their moral standard on us. Instead, we want our, our moral standard to come from within us by our choice and whatever decisions we happen to make. So let me ask you a question this morning. Would you want a world without justice? A world where people pimp out children and get away with it. Would you want a world where your neighbor can just walk into your house, drink milk from your fridge, kick your dog, and urinate on your sofa? Would you want a world like that? No, I think most of us would agree that we need justice in our world, at least some form, some semblance of justice, based on some sort of moral standard or ethical standard. So maybe, I mean, just maybe, our problem isn't so much with justice. Maybe it has something to do with who gets to distribute the justice. And not only that, but how justice actually gets distributed. But what the Bible clearly teaches is that the Lord of the universe is the final arbiter of justice. He is completely good. He is completely moral. He is completely holy and just. He is completely loving. And he is all-knowing. He knows all things. He sees all things. Nothing escapes his eye. He can't be bribed. He cannot be bought. And one day, this God will judge all the nations, and he will judge all the people with complete fairness and with complete equity. And that's the kind of judge who he is. Now, here's something else for us to consider this morning. Are love and justice really at odds? Okay? In other words, can a loving God actually be angry or wrathful? And I think the straightforward answer is just simply this, is that all loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath. And this is not despite their love. This is actually because of their love. I mean, if your spouse cheats on you, what are you doing? You're filled with wrath, right? Not because you don't love them, but actually because you do love them. Or when a family member ruins their life through foolish or reckless choices again and again, you, you get angry. You get angry because you love this person. And you probably wouldn't have the same reaction with just some random person. You have that reaction with the person that you love. See, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And the worst form of hate is indifference, not anger. If God was truly hateful, you know what God would do? He would ignore us. He wouldn't care. But because God does care, 
he does get anger, get angry at sin within us. So God's judgment, when you think about it, it's, it's not actually antithetical to his love. Rather, God's, God's judgment flows from his love. And, and you see this in God's relationship with Israel. God wasn't sitting back. He wasn't waiting for Israel to screw up, to make one tiny mistake so that he could pounce on them and then suddenly crush them, okay? He wasn't doing that. Instead, he continued to war, warn Israel. He kept trying to get their attention, kept trying to woo them back into the covenant relationship. And you see this played out. If you fast forward to chapter four of Amos, it talks about this. God sent them a famine. They did not return to them. He sent them a drought. They would not return to them. He sent them locusts and disease and war, yet they would not return back to their God. And each of these was just, was just a loving, gracious reminder of their covenant. Each of them was this appeal for them to return to him, to come back to him, but still they would not listen and still they would not return. And the prophecy of Amos, it needs to be understood as, as actually an act of grace. The Lord was giving Israel yet another chance. It was a warning. And this wasn't the last word. What was going to happen with the Assyrians was not inevitable. If Israel would choose to turn back to God, this was a conditional prophecy. If they were to turn back to God, the problem of the Assyrians would not happen. Israel could still have one more chance. And so what Amos teaches us and, and what Amos shows us is God is just. He is the just judge. But God is also merciful and gracious and loving. Now, thankfully, Amos is, is not the final word on God's judgment. And I want to ask the question then, what, what can we learn from what we've talked about in Amos today? I think, I think there are two lessons for us. And the first one is this. He is still the judge. You know, because the Lord is good and just, he must confront evil among Israel and the nations. And, and the Bible teaches us that there will come a day, there will be one day, where God will set the world right once and for all. And, and it's interesting, as, as you read through the Bible, this coming judgment of God, this future judgment that's, that's awaiting for, for all of the earth, is, is actually something to be celebrated, something to be longed for, something to be yearned after. I mean, it says in Romans 8 that the creation groans in anticipation for this great future event. In Psalm 98, it says the rivers clap their hands. The mountains sing for joy. The people raise their voices in praise at the thought of God's great and final future judgment. See, we still live in a world where people are sold into slavery. The poor are exploited. There's bullying. There's violence. There's oppression. Wars and genocide. Destruction. And of course, we know all too well, disease. One day, God will come, and he will bring justice to the world. He will make all things new, and he will set all things right. You know, I, I think many people are surprised to discover that it's Jesus who will actually be the one to judge the earth and set everything right. I mean, we think of Jesus as meek and mild and humble and loving, you know, with a lamb across his shoulders. We don't have this image of Jesus actually being the one who's going to come in and bring about God's judgment. But we read about it in many places in the New Testament. One of the places, of course, is in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. And these are the very words of Jesus. Here's what Jesus says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour's coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Who's he talking about? Himself. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 
So what does this text teach us? Okay, well, the Father has given Jesus the authority to bring about God's judgment to the world, and in the end, we'll all stand before him to be judged. Uh, those who have done good, it says, will receive life. Those who have done evil will receive judgment. Now, at first glance, if you are a believer in Christ, uh, this, we, um, you might be startled by what Jesus says here. <clears throat> those who have done good, he says, will receive life. Well, you might be asking the question, well, what good is he talking about? And how good is good? I mean, are we talking like Madonna good? Or are we talking like Mother Teresa good? I mean, what does he mean, those who do good will inherit eternal life? Well, thankfully, Jesus isn't speaking about our good deeds here. He's not talking about good works. He's not saying that if we try hard enough or live well enough, that we'll earn eternal life. That's not what he's saying. And the reason we know that is because of what he said just before this, in the verses before. Starting at verse 22, here's what he said. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. So what is the good that we must do to inherit eternal life? We must hear his word. And we must believe in him. So we receive Jesus and honor him as the son of God. We surrender our lives to him. This is how we pass from death to life and not come into judgment. And how is this possible? Well, because Jesus took our judgment upon himself. We read about this in Hebrews chapter 9. It says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, you're only going to die once. It's not YOLO, it's YODO, okay? Um, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to hear, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. <clears throat> Jesus, the judge, must punish sin. If he doesn't punish sin, he's not a judge. He's not a good judge. He's not a fair judge. He's not a righteous judge. He, to be a just judge, he actually has to punish sin. So Jesus had to satisfy his own requirement for judgment. For justice. How did he do that? By offering himself for us. He himself took the penalty of our sins upon himself and became sin for us that we might become righteous. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. And this was the most amazing act of grace. Imagine this. I mean, instead, the judge could condemn the criminal sitting in the box with a death sentence because he deserved it. He was guilty. But instead, the judge came down from his seat. He had himself instead shackled and led off and executed. And the criminal was set free. Jesus did that. He, he took our penalty for us so that we could avoid judgment. He offered himself once and for all for the sins of many. For those who believe in him. For those who receive him. For those who surrender their lives to him. That's amazing grace. And that's God's answer to judgment. But here's the second lesson I think we can learn from Amos, is that he still calls us to holiness. See, there is a reason why God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. It was so that they could be a holy people, set apart for God and for his purposes. They were saved unto holiness. I mean, let me back up the bus all the way back to the book of Exodus, chapter 19. And, and this is what the Lord said to Israel. This is what he proclaimed over his people. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Okay, he's rescued them. He's set them free. He's, he's brought them through and uh, through the Red Sea. He's, they've seen all of that. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, 
If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is why he rescued them. Kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a treasured possession. Now, that was under the old covenant, right? But through Christ's sacrifice, we know that he, he fulfilled the old covenant. The old covenant was now obsolete, rendering it obsolete. And so he established a new covenant in his blood. And this new covenant is for anyone who will receive Christ. And under this new covenant, he sets us free from the penalty of sin. He sets us free from the power of sin. And there is a reason why God now rescues us from slavery to sin. This is our own Egyptian rescue. It is so that we can be a holy people, set apart for him. We were saved unto holiness, just as Israel was saved unto holiness. And the apostle Peter writes about this in his first letter, his first epistle. Chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, here's what he says, and pay attention to this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God set us free so that we would be a holy people. The Lord still insists on holiness. The Lord still calls us to holiness. Did you notice what Peter said and how much it resembled what the Lord had said in the book of Exodus? See, sometimes we think that, that holiness uh, isn't that important now because we have grace. So if we mess up in sin, right, we can always just fall back on grace. Grace is, grace is like a parachute or it's like a crash mat, you know, to keep us from taking holiness too seriously. You know, the Apostle Paul addressed this letter in, in his, in his um, addressed this issue in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 6. Uh, here's what he said. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, here's the thing about grace. Grace was never meant to be a get-out-of-jail-free card for those of you who play Monopoly, right? It's not, was never meant to help us outmaneuver God to somehow get around our need for holiness. <clears throat> a buddy of mine from Bible college used to call this greasy grace. You know, the Apostle Paul, uh, the point is, 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 that gr is, Paul's point is that grace not only pays for our sin, but grace actually frees us from sin's power. And God gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can live holy lives. That's why he's called the Holy Spirit or the spirit of holiness. His, his work in our lives makes us holy. And so when I think about this, when I think about Amos and I think about the church and, and I think about my own life, I, I'm forced to ask some questions. And, and I hope you'll consider these questions this morning as well. Is holiness something we long for? Is, is holiness something we pursue? And is holiness something we're known for? Friends, the lion of Judah is still roaring. And he has paid for our judgment. And he will come one day to judge the whole world. And he calls us, the people of God, to holiness. Because he has set us free from our own Egypt, our own slavery to sin, that might, we might walk in the freedom and the goodness and the righteousness and the holiness to which we were called to. And may that be so for each and every one of us. Can you pray with me this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you for calling us out of darkness into light. 
Lord, thank you for your word that's, um, that's for us this morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking our judgment upon yourself. Thank you for loving us. And thank you that your posture is always towards us. And you're always calling us back to restored relationship. We praise you for that. And God, we so long to be a holy people, to be a righteous people, to reflect your image to the world. Thank you for setting us free from the power of sin. Thank you that we don't need to succumb and be slaves to sin anymore. And we surrender ourselves to you today. And we say, Lord, make us holy. Show us how. Give us the power to do it and the will to do it. And we will walk in it. We give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.